Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another athlete interview. A massive, massive interview for you today. We are speaking to the one, the only, Mr. Kieran Perkins. Now, for any Australian Olympic fan, the name Kieran Perkins automatically is someone who everybody knows. Four-time Olympic medalist, back-to-back gold medalist in the 1500 metres in 1992 and 1996. And, of course, the event in Atlanta arguably the greatest swimming race Australia has ever seen when it comes to just overall Olympic performances. And this is this is a great chat with Kieran going over a lot about his career, talking about the unique way that he got into swimming, some fun little things about a certain famous sponsorship deal that he had in the 90s that I'm sure kids of my age or uh, adults uh, of, of certain ages would remember that advertising campaign. And also talks a little bit about being involved in the Sydney Bid team and a unique story around that race in Atlanta in 1996. A certain another fellow Australian uh, high-profile athlete who just happened to be in the crowd and gave him a bit of a talk and uh, how that helped him potentially go on to uh, win that gold in that very, very famous race back in Atlanta. This is an amazing chat. You're going to get a lot from it. Here is our chat with Australian Olympic legend Kieran Perkins. So excited to welcome our next guest here to Off The Podium. If I was ever to start an introduction and say our next guest needs no introduction, it would probably be this guest, but I want to give him an introduction because I love reading out some of these things that he has achieved in his career. Three-time Olympian, four-time Olympic medalist, 11 world records set in his career, the first person in history to hold the Olympic World, Commonwealth and Pan-Pacific titles simultaneously all at the same time. That's what that means, Ben. That's why I'm saying that. Uh, held the world record in the 1500 meter freestyle for nine years, in the 800 meter for 10 years, and five years in the 400 meters. A young Australian of the year, and most importantly, the first person I think I've ever interviewed who wrote his own name on his milk. It is the one, the only, Kieran Perkins. Kieran, pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to Off the Podium. Thank you, Ben. Absolutely great to be here. It's um, one question I've always thought that if I ever got to interview Kieran Perkins, I have to ask, do you still write your name on your milk? <laughs> no, but I do. Uh, I, I can't tell you how often I do get asked about it. And, um, and, and it's, it's especially in the southern states because um, uh, 
you know, Pura was a, was a milk brand that uh, at that time wasn't strong up north. So uh, now living in Melbourne, uh, I do get it a bit and uh, <laughs> I, um, I find myself, I, 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 you know, I'm a company man. I can't help it. I still buy it if it's, uh, if it's available. <laughs> I actually, as a kid, um, drank it purely because of your sponsorship. So it worked. The, the sponsorship worked. I remember seeing it at the supermarket. I'm like, mum, dad, that's that drink that Kieran Perkins drinks. Can we drink it? And we got it. So Wow. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. And it, and it was a long relationship. I was with uh, with Pura for God. It had to be 12, 12 or fourteen years or something. Wow. Which um, you know, for for a swimmer whose career was uh, around, well, international career anyway, was was uh, about ten years. It was yeah, it was a good one. So thank you very much for your support. Well, thank thank Pura as well for producing some great milk, and people should go buy <laughs> Pura Light Start at their local supermarket wherever it is sold. But the thing the thing that I always love, sort of, whenever I I read about your your journey and your career, is 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 how it started. The fact that you basically had an injury as a kid, you ran through a, a plate glass window, and to help you rehabilitate, you took up swimming. So. I mean, is it that simple? Is that is that how it all started? Had you done any swimming before the accident, or was it a case of no? Nah, this is this is how it all started. So I had been I oh, well I had learned to swim before the accident, right? And and growing up in Queensland, you know, swimming was just it's a thing that we all did. In in fact, um, while I, I could um, you know save myself and paddle around before I joined school, when I joined school, you know. Um, end of January, uh, first, first PE lesson, it was swimming. And that was when I really sort of learned to swim. Um, and, and used to just play around at school a little bit doing that. But, um, but the accident after it happened, um, I, I had to do the rehab in the water, um, because I'd severed my left calf muscle completely. Uh, and my parents started taking me down to the the local shallow heated pool, um, which was a, a, a learned swim school, the John Carew Learn to Swim School. Um, and that, that that I mean, that, and that is what connected me with the sport. I think before then, I just did it like I did every other sport that I was involved in. You know, when you when you're nine, eight, nine, five, six, seven, you know, you just you, you do it all right. Like you, you play cricket because everyone else is playing cricket. And then when it's time to swim, you go swimming. So um, I started doing that rehab. And in the afternoons, um, you know, the squad would start um, as I was finishing. And I don't know, I just I just saw the, ki- saw the kids in the squad and they looked like they were learning and enjoying themselves. And so I, after my rehab was, was um, complete, I um, asked mum and dad if I could stay. And uh, that's uh, that's when I started training with Mr. Crew at nine years of age, and I was, you know, twenty-eight year old father of two at the time when I retired, and he was still my coach. Wow, what a relationship! That's fantastic. What were some of the other sports that you're saying you played? Were there there any other potentials? Could we have seen Kieran Perkins a champion in a, in, a, in another sport? Had things gone a different way? Absolutely not. No, I, I have no hand-eye coordination to to speak of. I can't run to save myself. You know, I I, um, I I think in many ways, you know, where that story pertains to it being lucky um, is that uh, I think if 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 I'd have not found that environment and swimming, um, 
I don't think I like. In fact, I know I wouldn't have continued on with sport in any serious way um, as I got older. You know, I, even even to even today, you know, I, I look back at it all and I don't count myself as a sporty guy. You know, I'm not one of those kids that um, every lunch hour I had to be out running around kicking a football or or, or playing whatever game was going around. Um, you know, in, in high school, you would have um, more likely found me in the library playing chess um, with my mates than uh, than playing sports. So so soon. Swimming was for me was definitely a very unique, um, a unique thing. Which on that page, then I, what you're saying, I mean, it wouldn't sound like maybe you paid much attention to say the Olympics when they were on. Was this something that kind of only became a a goal when you got more into swimming? I mean, was this something that you would still at least paid attention to the Olympics as a kid and thought that would be cool at least, or? Like every Australian, you know, when the Olympics is on, of course, you you pay attention. I, I think, again, where timing played a bit of a part for me, um, the 82 Commonwealth Games in Brisbane um, was a mm. big deal. I mean, you know, ev- everybody in, in southeast Queensland, the country, but especially southeast Queensland, you know, we were we were so in- engaged with with those Commonwealth Games. And, um, you know, my mum my and dad managed to get us tickets and we went to a couple of the swimming events and then I also. So uh, we also got to go to the closing ceremony, and and if I'm honest, that was the that was kind of the one where I, I, I connected to that type of sport and that that level of sport internationally, and um, and 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 you know from then on, I was I was I was a lot more interested in it than I'd been before that, and and you know the timing from a swimming perspective worked as well, right? Because 1980 Australian swimming. Um, did well in Moscow, but there was there was all always that kind of well the Americans are boycotted. I mean, there was a lot of people didn't go because of the political situation, and so you know while it got attention, it probably wasn't a big deal. Um, but then you know one of my first swimming memories is John Sieben in Los Angeles in '84, um, winning and Laurie Lawrence doing his crazy uh, on deck celebrations and um, you know and so by that time I was well and truly um, into it. When you are progressing through the ranks, I've, I'm always intrigued to sort of see what gets swimmers into the the distance events. So ultimately, fifteen hundred meters is what you're best known for. But was it a case of that's just how Physically, you worked. You worked better towards the more distance events. Were the coaches kind of spotting this and were telling you, "Look, you're a better distance swimmer. This is what you train for." Or was there just something about it that appealed to you and you kind of focused on that? Um, look, I think it, the, the progression just means that it, 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 there's a natural selection element to it, right? Like you start off and you do the short events, like everybody does. Um, and the reality for me was I was not successful at those. I was never a, a, a school age champ or, um, you know, somebody that even Mr. Crew used to look at and go, geez, he could be a great swimmer one day. You know, I was just, just one of the group. Um, and as you get older, you sort of, you do longer races and longer races and longer races. And, and you know, for me, um, uh, because I wasn't successful in the short races, I, I didn't get kind of caught in the, I love these and this is all I'm going to do. So I was happy to explore the longer ones. And, um, you know, by the time I did my first 1500 at 13, I think I was, um, I I guess I'd I'd sort of reached that point where it became obvious that actually while I I didn't have great all-out speed, um, I could just keep going and distance was definitely the thing that worked for me. So, um, you know, Many of my swimming mates would just say that, you know, um, I kept going till all the smart kids stopped and I eventually won something. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was clear that um, that was just that was just where my capacity was. And, um, 
you know, and, and, I, and I must say, I did enjoy it as well. You know, I think one of the things, um, like I always remember as a kid doing sprint races and, and it just felt like you'd, you know, you close your eyes, you hold your breath, you throw your arms around as fast as you can and sort of hope that it goes okay. Whereas the distance races felt like more of a, I don't know, you felt more engaged with it, right? Like you, you, there was tactics, there was the race would evolve, you, how you feel would evolve because, you know, for me in a sprint race, I never really felt like I burned up everything that I had in me because the races just weren't long enough for the um, capacity I had. So, yeah, the just distance races did connect with me as well. But um, you could probably argue you tend to enjoy something that you're successful at a little bit more than the stuff you're not. Yes, yes, uh, that, that's a very good point to make. It's it's interesting. We talked during Tokyo when the fifteen hundred was on that you know someone in my generation growing up watching you and and then watching Grant and kind of just kind of expecting to be dominant in the fifteen hundred meters. That was kind of just the thing, and it was sort of more of a case I feel of people of my generation that we were more into the distance swimming because that's where we knew it was going to come. Where maybe it's sort of a little bit differently, particularly say in the men's side of things now. So it's kind of. Interesting, because I, I like the strategy. I like, I like that kind of element of a 1,500 metres, that you're going to sit down, you're going to watch it. And then I, I saw an interview with you just before I started this interview where you were talking about the importance of, say, the middle 500 part of a, of a 1,500 and not just going out the beginning and going in the end. So all those strategic elements, which makes it, would you say, maybe the most unique event on the swimming calendar that kind of, you know, there, there's strategy more so than it is on those shorter distances? Oh look, you, of course I'm going to say yes to that. Uh, I, uh, again, I'm, my my sprint mates would probably argue the point. The 400 medley, of course, they're all unique. I think the thing that really makes, um, you know, connects the 1500 to Aussies. Firstly, we've we've been successful in it generationally, right? Like yeah. um, since the early Olympics in the early 1900s, we've done well in distance swimming, and you you throw names like Murray Rose and John Conrad's and. Um, you know, uh, as you mentioned, Grant, myself, Steve Holland, like there's there's a long history in it. So we've always had to paid attention to it. But I have to say, I think in general, Australians, for whatever reason, we actually just we do in, we do love longer sport. Like what, what person in their right mind thinks test cricket is a great idea that you could play for five days and it ends in a draw. But Aussies love it. Right. AFL, yeah. you know, for for. Um, 20, is it 25 minutes, however long the quarters are, um, you know, that all stretch to 30 plus with um, injury time. But it's a fast game, you know. It's not like a, like American football where they actually only play for 40 minutes or so, but because of the, the stoppages, it goes for much longer. Like, like Aussies love intense, extended, you know, uh, evolving um, competition that has its ups and downs and and we love an underdog too right and um, the longer the race the more you get to see the underdog sort of fight back and come through so so I, I just think it, it connects with the Aussie psyche for whatever reason it's it's always been a part of who we are um, it, it, it is it is a shame that you know we um, haven't maintained quite the same level of, of superiority as, as probably we historically have. But that said, you know, um, the guys did really well in Tokyo and I think, um, you know, we're not far away from um, finding ourselves back at the top of the tree again, um, which which would be awesome. But you're right. I mean, this current crop of swimmers, you know, um, a lot more talent in the sprint and um, form stroke space, which, uh, you know, we'll never, uh, we'll never complain about because it's always, always great to see an Aussie win either way. 
Yeah, well, I was going to mention about the generational thing. I think kind of the way it has happened that obviously, you know, the 50s, kind of 60s obviously worked well. Melbourne, 1956, then kind of the 90s, the 2000s worked well for Sydney. So now it's kind of a bit of a low, but then, you know, we've got 11 years to get it back up to scratch again to keep that up. You know, three home Olympics in Australia's history, three gold medals in the 1500. That's that sounds like a very good goal. I like it. Yes, you can take that. You can take that on board. You know, just, <laughs> I will. You might have Thank some connections you. in swimming Australia, but um, <laughs> you're you obviously your first international major international competition, in the Commonwealth Games in 1990, World Champs 91. Then your first Olympics in in 1992 in, in Barcelona. When you kind of again progressing through those ranks, you you break the 15 minute barrier in in Auckland, and then go on to ultimately smash the world record in, in Barcelona. Was this something that Mentally, you just always thought this was achievable. Was it something that kind of surprised you at sort of the succession it sort of came? Or as an athlete, is it just you're always striving to do your best, so you're going to take what it comes along and you're striving to be the best in the world. So, of course, that's what you're aiming for. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's it's a little bit of everything, but fundamentally, you know, you're right. As an athlete, there is just this thing where you are always pushing to succeed and do better. Um, you know, I often tell um, people that, um, you know, and comparing it to my day job now, you know, you look at, like I think about swimming and every time we raced, we'd get out of the pool and we, and we talked the first person that you want to talk to and that you, you needed to talk to was your coach. And you'd kind of have this three-step conversation, which was the initial celebration about what worked really well. Then you'd talk about the bits that didn't go great. And then you'd, you'd have a conversation about what you wanted to fix and how you wanted to fix it. And from that point on, the, what, the how you – the how you were going to fix it agreement, that was the only thing you talked about. Like you never never went back. Like I never as a, as a kid um, or as an athlete rewatched my races. I was there. I know what happened. And, and Mr. Crew and I had had the conversation immediately after the race when it was all fresh and worked out what we were going to work on next. And then what you're working on next becomes your whole context. And so you're always striving to improve. You're always pushing yourself forward. You're always, you know, evolving. Where I think uh, for me there was probably a bit of a step change um, as a young athlete, I, I came into the sport at a time when, when you know, we, we didn't have a, a consistently strong program. We had a couple of pockets of success, but in, in general swimming in Australia was in a little bit of a funk. And, um, you know, uh, at those Commonwealth Games or the trials for those Commonwealth Games, um, which were in Adelaide uh, in late in 80, 1989, um, in the the heats of the 1500, Glenn Houseman um, broke the world record, broke 15 minutes and broke the world record. Now you, you'll never find it in the record books because the timing equipment failed and he wasn't he was never actually certified to have swum that race. But every single person that was at the pool saw it, um, and we we absolutely know that he did it. And the thing that, that was was extraordinary for me watching that is here I was watching someone in my race, the 1500, achieving something which I had been um, brought up to believe was impossible. Like swimmers in Australia leading into that believed breaking 15 minutes for the 1500 was impossible. Um, and, and seeing Glenn do that just, I mean, it just just blew me away, right? I, I, I remember going back home after that and, and I, I managed the next day to come third in those trials and, and get selected for the team but I remember going home after that and just and it just played on my mind this thing of you know I didn't think anyone could break 15 minutes but I saw Glenn do it and it wasn't like it was Superman or or some you know um, otherworldly thing it was this 
guy from Rockhampton that I'd seen on pool deck hundreds of times before who was just normal. Um, and that, that changed my, my, my mindset, my perception about what's possible. Um, and, and I, and I do, I do think in terms of, you know, those turning moments or those, all those significant moments in your, in your life when you kind of come to realize something, um, that was, that was a real turning point for me because after that I, um, I was never, I never allowed myself to be bound by what other people thought was or wasn't possible. Which then come Barcelona when you smash the world record yourself, <laughs> go 14.43, beat Glenn by, you know, uh, more than 10 seconds. I mean, in the space of a couple of years, things changed a little bit. I mean, that must be a pretty special feeling to then think back to that moment when you witness that and then all of a sudden you're the one creating uh, even more history. Yeah, look, it did, it did all happen very quickly, really. I mean... Um, you know, and, and if I'm honest, while there was definitely physical improvement over that time, you know, you're a teenager, you're growing, you're, you're learning, you're, you're constantly evolving. Um, but, you know, I do think in many ways that that kind of mindset shift um, was, was one of the biggest differences in how I was able to, to perform and get the best out of myself under pressure. Um, and, and you're right, it did happen really quickly. I mean, looking back on it now, um, I swam in... I think it was like around April of 89 at the age group championships in the 1500 freestyle and one in, in like my best time at the then of a 14, uh, sorry, 15 minutes, 41. Um, and, you know, just over two years later was winning an Olympic gold medal in record time, almost a minute faster. I mean, it's just, you know, um, it happened. It did, did happen quick. Yeah. I mean, it's just you think about these magical barriers in, in so many different sports and, you know, you think of the 10-second barrier in the 100 metres. I mean, you know, there's not – you're never going to get a, a, a five-second, <laughs> you know, 100 metres. You're not going to beat that by five seconds. So, I mean, it's just – it's an insane thing to kind of think. And then just seeing, like, as it keeps progressing along the way, I mean, it's, it's kind of scary to think that where could the time go in, in 20, 30 years? How much lower can that time go? Oh, and, and look, it's a, it's the forever question, right? Like I, I remember talking to uh, Murray Rose, um, and you know, just awestruck by the legend that is that was. And um, I remember him commenting on, you know, my world record. I think his his world record was was well over sixteen minutes, I think. And you know, um, him talking about the fact that you know I'm swimming so much faster. And as you say, you know, the current crop, like I watched the Tokyo Olympics and um, all of the finalists got um, under the time that I won in Atlanta in the heat to make the final. You know, it's yeah. like unbelievable how it progresses and how so many people sort of keep pushing barriers and boundaries. And and, and when will it end? I, I don't know. You're right. It can't ever get to zero. So there's there's got to be a limit. But like maybe the 10 second 100, you know, you do just get to a point where it takes – a decade or more for someone to knock a hundredth of a second off it and, and, and just that rate of progression slows, but there will always be a bigger, better, faster athlete coming. Well, one more thing on Barcelona, obviously the silver in the 400 narrowly missing out on, on, on the gold. I mean, there's such a gap, like as an armchair expert, Kieran, um, you know, 400 to 1500, it's more than a kilometre of difference. It's not like you're doing the two to 400. So how is it that you, I guess mentally, you miss out on a gold medal by that much and then you've got to back that up, what, two days later to go in the 1500. I mean, do you just kind of use that 
disappointment of not getting a goal to spur on for the 1500? Do you take it as a celebration? I'm an Olympic medalist, so I'm going to use this adrenaline to go on towards that. I mean, kind of take us through, I guess, the, the mentality that went through your head from getting that silver to then going into the 1500. Yeah, look, it, it's um, it's one of those things that you, you you develop as you progress in your sporting career and, it, and it's the capacity to really compartmentalise things. So, you know, very much after that race, the 400 happened and, you know, we'd had the, the uh, medal presentation. I mean, by the time I got to back to the village that night, I was, it was done. You don't think about it again because you're, you're thinking about the 1500 and where you're going and that capacity to kind of turn, turn parts of your, your thought process or your brain off so that you don't go down a path of, 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 um, thinking to hold yourself in the here and now and to, to be most, to be focused on what matters most right now is a, it's a really, really important skill. And, um, and, and it is just one of those things that you develop. I mean, look, I also, you know, I didn't go into the 400 in it in Barcelona with um, huge expectations. I mean, I, I hoped I'd medal. I, I, I wanted to see how fast I could swim because in many ways at that point, you know, I, I, I treated it as a bit of a warm-up to the 1500 as opposed to it being its own standalone race. And um, so, you know, I, I certainly wasn't disappointed after the fact in a way that, that, that affected me, but, you know, even even still um yeah by the next morning i was too busy worrying about how i was pre- prepping for the 15 that you just don't even think about it that might be the best warm-up i've ever heard an olympic silver medal in a warm-up so, <laughs> yeah, yeah and look you know the thing that's really fascinating because i look back on it now of course and go man i can't believe i didn't uh you know i didn't pick up that one and 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 with a with it with an air of frustration because i don't think um the uh the gentleman who beat me in that one um was uh, what you what what you would call a clean skin. So uh, you know, it was one of the frustrations that exists perpetually in in sport. But um, you know, it uh, it is what it is, and the silver medal's on the shelf. And uh, you know, I um, I can certainly be proud. In terms of just Olympic experiences in general, we always like to hear from our guests kind of moments that you're experiencing. You obviously went to three different Olympics now. In the same interview I think I watched with you just before this, I, I heard you sort of talk about how it was maybe Sydney where you really started to soak things in and kind of, you know, realising that. But sort of in those first Olympics in Barcelona, is there any moment that you can just take a little side note and go, I'm at the Olympics, this is this is the, the peak of sport, like this is where I am right now? Or was it just so competition-focused that it wasn't until those subsequent games that you really started to take notice of things like that? There's no doubt that as you get older, you become far more aware of the significance of the things that you're doing and and, and more connected to it. So, you know, I I definitely um, have more memory and enjoyed the Sydney Games more than Barcelona for that reason. Um, But but that said, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's moments like I remember in Barcelona um, uh, being in the dining hall one night and, and just sitting there eating, there was a couple of us. And, you know, you, you're feeling like a real young rookie, you know, totally um, in awe of the, the space that you're in. And I remember sort of looking, ac- looking across on the table that I was on and Steffi Graf was sitting sort of just a few seats down that way and Carl Lewis walked into the, into the room at the back and there was all this commotion. And, and, and you know, there, there, is, there is moments like that where you sort of think, Oh my God! I can't believe I'm here. You know, um, the um, 
the dream team. I mean, that was that was the dream team in '92. Yeah. You know, um, and I remember being in 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 and this was after the swimming in Los Ramblas one night, and you know, Charles Barkley's walking through the middle of it, and there's just this hundreds of kids following him as he's walking through town, and you know, the boat that they were all staying on, sort of sitting in the harbour that everyone knew that's where the that's where the dream team was staying. I mean, there was just there was just stuff like that that you won't forget. But in terms of sort of the overall, um, it's still a lot of it is a blur. Um, Atlanta, you know, for different reasons because of the stresses I, I, I sort of felt with how that went, um, probably also missed a bit. But then, you know, I remember um, I met um, Muhammad Ali um, at wow. those games. Um you know, being um, in, in the home of Coca-Cola and all of the just the over-the-top pomp and ceremony that came with uh, an American Games in Atlanta, um, being being in Centennial Park the night the um, bomb went off. You know, there was there was certainly some moments with those games as well. Um, but I think the thing, you know, the difference uh, that you point out, like at Sydney. It was more about the race, you know. I, like, I, I actually, as I walked out behind pool deck, I actually lifted up my head and had a look at the crowd and sort of took a moment to listen to it and just be, and absorb the energy and be there. Um, whereas, you know, most all of the races at the Olympics before that, you know, there'll be little snippets here and there that I recall, but generally, you know, you just head down, focused on the water, and you sort of don't um, don't really uh, absorb too much of the um, context of what you're involved in. On the flip side of that, though, you talk about your first Olympics kind of being the young, naive sort of, you know, here are these superstars. But I can imagine by Sydney, you're a superstar in your own right. You're the reigning two-time champion. You're going to have people coming up to you and going, oh, my God, it's Kieran Perkins. Like, I, I want a photo. I want to meet him. Like, is that distracting? Or, like, do you just kind of know where you were at when you were kind of on the other side of that and just take it in your stride? Yeah, look, I mean, especially by the by that time, you know, I was well and truly in the space where it, it was just a fact of life. I'd been been there for a long time and knew knew what that was like. Um, and again, that compartmentalisation bit, because there's no doubt that being at a home Olympics it escalates that quite a lot. You know, you go you go into the village in Atlanta or Barcelona and you walk around and no one knows who you are. You know, the, the security guards, the people serving the food, the shop assistants, the cleaners, like they, no one knows who you are and you just get on with your day. Um, whereas at home games, you know, every person that's opening a door, every person that's serving your food, every person that's, that's um, you know, cleaning the place, like they all know who you are. And, and, and you know, the, the energy and the good intent and good vibes that it brings, um, you know, it's interesting the impact it has. Like for me, I took it as a nice thing, right? Like I, I always and worked out very young in my career that um, you can't please all the people all the time. And so, you know, there's no point getting bent out of shape because somebody doesn't like you or, or criticizes what you do because you, you know, you just, you can't win. You can't ever actually change that. And the vast majority of people are actually really positive with lots of good, good wishes and will because they they support you, right? And so, I, I always was I always you know happily accepted that and recognised it was a part of it, um, and 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 was very good at compartmentalising at that point as well. You know, I could get back to my room at night and sort of turn all that off. Whereas whereas other guys did struggle with it. There's no doubt, especially some of the rookies, um, you know, being in that environment and having that much attention on them. Um, as 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 nice and 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 as positive as it was intended to be, um, it still still did create a lot of pressure. 
Because it was really an interesting period in swimming. Again, something we talked about too during our Tokyo coverage was I don't know if there was ever such a period in, in swimming in Australia where you guys were probably the biggest athletes in the country at that point, not to take away from, you know, our, our great swimmers today, but I'm thinking like you and Susie, like in the nineties. And then obviously when people like Thorpe, Hackett, Klim, you know, are coming along and kind of into the early two thousands. I mean, it was like you were the biggest athletes in the country at that point, bigger than any cricketer or footballer. I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear that perspective that, you know, how you sort of taken that because again, it just, I guess it comes with the territory that you kind of just have to kind of accept this. But at the end of the day, you've got a job to do that swim and you're going to go out there and, and do the best you can. And generally the best you can is pretty darn good. <laughs> yeah, look, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think the thing that's, um, um, you know, cause I'm, now that I'm back involved with swimming again, it's really sort of fascinating getting into the, the nuance of it. And, and I think that there was, you know, there were some very significant differences in the environment back then, right? Um, you know, firstly, there was a group of us who came through who I think um, had aspirations to be more than just successful swimmers. You know, the the, the ability to commercialise your brand, to create those relationships with, with the public and corporate Australia. Um, and, and it was all managed in a... In a um, in a, in a, I guess, a central type way, right? Like you talked about Pura, you know, um, Pura, Pura obviously saw the benefit in being able to engage a, a, an athlete like myself for promotional reasons. And I obviously enjoyed um, the, uh, the the financial benefit of being able to um, on, on sell my name, face and image. Um, but, it, but it needed to be more than that because it's not just about putting your picture on something. You, you have to, you know, do the events, engage with the public and all that sort of stuff. And that was a, a happy trade-off that we were willing to do because we knew it grew our personal profile, it grew your personal opportunity for sponsorship, um, and those sponsors would promote you through all of the standard sort of media um, channels that existed back then. Um, and so there was this, this sort of um, managed evolution and delivery. Um, and, and I think at that point in time, famous people were famous because they did something that, that um, was noteworthy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Act, actors, musicians, sports stars, politicians, like, you know, you, you, you sort of broke through when you did something significant um, and, the, and the, the, the machine started to promote you and talk about you and that created profile. You fast forward to today and, um, you know, social media has changed the game dramatically. Um, you know, uh, an individual can have 40 or 50,000 um, uh, followers on Instagram and they've got a commercial outlet, um, you know, um, and and I think for a lot of our athletes, the, um, you know, the way that they're willing to engage with the public and think about the way that they need to promote their brands is very different. And because it's different, it doesn't end up driving the same mass appeal um, as, as what we probably had previously had. And, you know, it's something that the sport also needs to take responsibility for because we've got to help these guys promote themselves beyond just, you know, um, driving driving a good Instagram following and, and sort of that earning them enough that they can swim without having to have a day job. Um, whereas, you know, we, we certainly pushed a lot further. So, but I think you're starting to see that a little bit, you know, with, with people like Ariane Titmus, um, 
you know, Kate Campbell, I think, um, you know, Emma McKeon and Kaylee McEwen have certainly got opportunity now. And there's, there's a few names like that, which I think you're probably likely to see grow, um, especially because, you know, for instance, um, Ariane and Kaylee, they're both, what, 2021 at their first Olympics. Yeah. They've got, they, you know, they, they could have another eight to 10 years of, high profile success and that and that'll that'll create another era like we had in the 90s potentially i'm a proud tasmanian love me some ariane titmus <laughs> but i've got to say her ads with harvey norman haven't had quite the same impact as your pure milk ads. so i'm just saying like maybe she needs to start writing a name on the ovens or something like that so maybe maybe keep, keep selling it that way <laughs> One of your most successful meets, and I think, you know, we're really kind of after an Olympics, you know, comes next, the Commonwealth Games in 1994. Now, I was living in Victoria until earlier this year, and I, I went to the pool several times because it actually wasn't far from where I lived. And I, I every time I would just step in this building, and I just like, wow, like, just think of the history. I'm one of those weird Olympic people that goes to buildings and just remembers. Like, <laughs> I went to see a Utah Jazz game, and I didn't care about the basketball. I just knew that's where Stephen Bradbury won our first Winter Olympic gold medal. So that's why I was yeah. excited there. Yeah. But, I mean, what was... That experience like to come from, you know, you've had the world at your feet, you're setting world records, Olympic gold medals, and to just go in to a Commonwealth Games and, and come away with, like, four gold medals win every event you go in. I mean, that just boosting that confidence and just everything that you must have been feeling at that point. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, it was it was an extraordinary meet and, and extraordinary too because um, it, it, it sits in a funny place for Aussies, right? Um, if, you're a, if you're a swimmer, the most important event that you can ever win is the Olympic Games. And then probably the next most challenging meet you'll swim in is the World Championships. And then the one after that's the Pam Packs and then the Commonwealth Games in, in terms of what the competition level is going to be like. But then as, because it's the Commonwealth Games, it's second only to the Olympics in importance. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 it, it sort of holds this weird weird place for swimmers, um, and and so you know, I mean, I went to, I went to those um, games in Canada, knowing that two weeks after that we had the World Championships in Rome, and the World Championships in Rome was where I wanted to swim my best because I was going to be racing the world, whereas the Commonwealth Games was going to be a good good you know meet where you want to win and you want to do well, but it's more about. The, the racing and the winning than necessarily the all-out times and the um, uh, and the ranking performances. So you know, it was a in many ways it was a ball. It was just a I don't know. It didn't ha- it didn't hold the same pressure, I suppose. And so you just I just got in there and had lots of fun. It was the one and only international relay gold medal I won in the with the four by two hundred, and that was incredible to have the opportunity to swim in a relay uh, at that level. Um, you know, it was uh, it, it was an awesome games, and, and awesome. I think also again, you know, as you say, the, the context of the environment, right? Like the, it was a great pool, mm. uh, but it was Canada, and yeah. you know, Canada and Aussies, we've got we've got that affinity, you know, where we 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 believe um, in the importance of of the Commonwealth and winning in the Commonwealth, but we're also, you know, the um, Antipodeans fighting against the mother country. And so, you know, you, <laughs> you sort of have that, that, um, that common desire when it's all said and done to make sure first and foremost, you smash the palms. Uh, and then after that, we worry about beating each other, you know, it's, uh, uh, and, and so the Canadians were always just great, gracious and great hosts. They love having us there and we love being there. And, of course, Victoria produced a pretty good 1,500-metre swimmer in Ryan Cochran, uh, who kind of uh, came a few years after you'd hung up yeah. the, uh, the goggles there as well. You did. 
obviously Atlanta, very famous. There's probably not a single question I can ask you right now that you haven't answered a hundred times. Is there anything about Atlanta that maybe hasn't been told or something that maybe you haven't really sort of told a lot about? Because, I mean, it's just so etched in Olympic history for Australians that I, I can't imagine there's, there's not a lot that you haven't discussed about it before. No, you're right. It is It is obviously one of those things that, that people do remember and you do, you know, I do get asked about it quite a lot. Um, look, I think uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think I, for a long time, I probably haven't talked or mentioned much that um, uh, it was the first time that I met Greg Norman. Wow. And uh, he, uh, I mean, the, the funny side story was is that he was there, he, he, he bought a ticket in the public grandstand. He wasn't, you know, um, playing on the Greg Norman name. He just he bought a ticket for him and his son in the morning to watch the heats. And um, they were in the grandstands. And, of course, you know, the public recognised him and he had this long line of people asking him for autographs. And um, one of the security guards who was actually near where the Aussie swim team was sitting um, went and asked um, our head coach, you know, hey, Greg Norman's over there and he's getting harassed. Um how would you feel if I brought him over here so he could sort of, you know, be in a secure spot? And of course, our our head coach is like is a was a massive golfer, and yeah, 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 that'd be awesome. And I'm sure when the um, uh, the security guard asked Norman if he wanted to come over, he probably thought, oh wow, this is awesome, not realizing that he'd spend the next two hours answering golf questions from <laughs> our head coach. But um, he, he he sat in the stands and he watched the racing, and then afterwards they brought him down on pool deck something you'd never get away with now, like, you know, post 9-11, um, Centennial Plaza bomb, you know, there's no way in the world that um, some random, no matter how famous you are, can just wander onto pool deck at the Olympics. But here he was. And I, I'd, I'd, had, a, I'd had a shocking heat um, and was, you know, freaking out a little bit about what I was going to do in the final the next night. Um, and I sort of get to the pool deck, the warm down area, and there's Greg Norman. I was like, holy crap. Greg Norman, because um, I'd never met him before, but, you know, like every Aussies, you know, who you certainly know who he was. Um, and and we got introduced and, and didn't have long to talk because I needed to do my warm down, but it was one of those, it was kind of one of those weird conversations that a couple of strangers who are, you know, connected by the similarity of what they do, um, you know, looking for a conversation, but otherwise having nothing in, like we didn't know each other, were complete strangers. You know, we talked about the weather and I asked him how he was enjoying the Atlanta and, you know, all the sort of niceties. And then it just got to this moment where he, you know, did the statesman thing and he said to me, look, you, you look like you've had a bit of a rough morning this morning, but, you know, you're a great champion. You know, you know how to win. You'll be fine. Don't forget that. And at the time, I, I kind of, like in the moment, I, I obviously thanked him and was, was you know, really, um, I mean, it was amazing to meet him and it was good of him to take the time. But I remember sort of jumping in the water doing my warm down and thinking, yeah, that, that's, that's not enough. I need, I need something else to make the difference or to turn the dial here, you know. But it was, it was incredible thinking back on it now, sort of the next 48 hours or 36 odd hours between the heat and the final. You know, I, I had these amazing roller coaster up and downs, but really what it came down to, um, to, to be able to swim well in the final was just, it was this moment of recognition that, you know, you've been swimming this race your whole life, you know how to do it. Um, and the things that 
enabled you to be successful when you were young still matter and all of this stuff that you're worried about as an adult that um, is getting in the way of allowing you to swim well doesn't matter uh, and just relying on that experience and history and recognising it and, t- and not taking it for granted, actually using it um, with purpose. Um, you know, it, it, it became a revelation and it really, you know, at the time connected, like, well, certainly now when I think back on it, you know, it was it was very sage advice from him. And um, if I'd have been just a little bit smarter, I would have worked it out just a little bit quicker than I ultimately did. What an incredible story. That's amazing. Did, did you ever then get a chance to go and hit some balls with him? Like, did you coach Pester him enough to get an invite to kind of have a, have a round or two with him? Uh, no, in fact, um, uh, didn't see him again for quite a number of years. But uh, Qantas, um, back in the golden days of uh, corporate hospitality, used to run golf days. Uh, and um, I did a few of them. And one year, ended up doing it. Greg Norman was there. And... Um, we, we played a couple of holes together and uh, one of the things that, that you know, he's a, he's a unique cat as uh, I'm sure anyone that's uh, seen some of his more recent uh, yes. um, socials would uh, would recognise. Um, and I remember, you know, we played these two holes of golf. I, I didn't play golf. I wasn't a great golfer. I just, you know, was doing the corporate thing. And he gave me a few tips as we were playing and then at the end of it just said, you are really absolutely hopeless at this, aren't you? Why, why are you here? <laughs> you know, just, thanks, mate. The bus um, changes a little bit from Atlanta. Uh. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. Wow. No, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's a, it was it's funny how um, how life life cycles around. But I've, I've I have met him a few times and spent time with him um, at a few different events and things. And um, I, I, I've met. There's been very few people I've met who are perpetually driven. Like there is nothing that that man does by half. He never, he never, he never takes it easy or gives himself a free kick on anything. Like that's a, that's a human being that you're not surprised he's he's, he's as successful as he has been in everything that he does because he is, he is a driven, driven man. On Sydney, there's a side question I want to ask just in regards to the bid based on an interview we just had on the show. But had the next Olympics after Atlanta not been Sydney, do you think you would have continued on for a third Olympics? I think probably not. Um, you know, it, it's hard to know, you know, sliding doors moments in life. But, um, you know, I, when I came back from Atlanta, I was I was pretty, pretty burnt. And um, at that point where you sort of like, you know, um, uh, um, getting getting married, you know, thinking about life after sport, you're getting older, you're sort of wanting to move move on and move forward and um and and after the difficulty that i'd had in atlanta which had been a couple of years of difficulty i know the race and that's sort of the 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 moment of the games themselves is the focal point but it was really a challenge from after rome for the you know for the 18 months from then to sort of the the olympics that that it was all hard um and yeah i i did spend quite a bit of time after atlanta wondering could I, should I go on, you know, can I do this for another four years? And, um, and there is no doubt that having a home games pushed me, pushed me a bit harder. You know, there was a higher sense of obligation than what there might've been if, um, if I hadn't um, had a home games to race at. And I think you'll see that in, in um, Brisbane in 32 as well. You know, there'll be athletes that, um, you know, uh, will, will stay in the pool longer because they've got this opportunity and, um, that's one of the awesome genius things about home games. 
We've already heard a lot from several athletes just coming back from Tokyo, how they're saying, I'm pushing myself to Brisbane. Oh, it's 11 years away, but it doesn't matter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on that. We, we recently spoke with uh, David Mason, who, of course, was a uh, producer on, on sort of the bid pr- presentation that eventually went there from Sydney. You were obviously involved in kind of uh, being a bit of a spokesperson, helping with that bid. Um, he mentioned that he had a conversation with you, I think, just after Sydney got announced, and said something along the lines of like, is this as good as an Olympic gold medal? And you said something along the lines of, this is better than winning an, an Olympic gold medal. I mean, does it make it a little bit extra special to come away from a home Olympics with a medal, knowing that you kind of maybe played a bit of a part in getting those Olympics to Australia and being involved in, in the bid from the very beginning? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not something that you sort of talk to because there's, there's, there's a lot of people that put in a hell of a lot of, um, of work into making that happen. But, you know, having the chance to be in Monaco, to be part of the bid team, um, part of the presentation, as well as all of the work that went on outside of, um, you know, the actual um, session, uh, the IOC session, Look, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I look back at that and I still, in many respects, I can't believe I was, I was there involved in that, you know, um, 20 years old, um, on my own in Monaco, um, whining and dining and, and, and standing up and presenting in that, that environment, representing your country in its opportunity to have an Olympics. And it really was a bid back then, you know, it really was yeah. a, you know, um, in this moment you can, um, Win or lose it on the on the way that the um, you know the 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 undecided delegates um, take on your presentation. So it was it was it was monumental, and I think the reason too, you know, the comment about how you know it being better. I mean, one of the reasons that drove that is that you know you knew, like, when I when I swam, ultimately it was for me. You know, like yes, you're representing your country. Yes, all your coach and your family and everyone who's put in all this effort to get you there. You know, you, you, you feel a sense of connectedness to that. But actually, when it's all said and done, really, it's your performance and, and your ability to then assess, you know, have I succeeded or not? Being a part of that bid team, like a whole nother level of pressure, right? Like I, I, didn't, I didn't at that point consider myself to be someone who was a professional presenter or, or public speaker, and I had to public speak. Um, I had all of these other people who had dedicated you know, years and years and years of their life to get us to that moment. Um, and then, of course, when Sydney was announced, I mean, I, I, I mean, the celebration was out of control. And, you know, I, 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 that famous video of um, Jeff Fay um, jumping in the air and bouncing up and down, I was sitting behind him, so you couldn't see me because he was bouncing up and down like a lunatic. But, <laughs> you know, being being in that space at that time when that was announced, it really was quite extraordinary. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. Which then that unique aspect that we're going to see in the next 11 years on Brisbane and, and for you, a home Olympics, your home city, 50 years after experiencing a, a Commonwealth Games. I mean, is it something that you see yourself maybe being involved in or sort of doing what, what you can maybe to help, you know, promote another Olympics in Australia, in, literally in your home city? Oh, look, I, yeah, I'm, I, I have no doubt that there will be um... – things that will come up along the way i don't i don't have any sort of a grand plan for um pursuing a a, a specific role or anything um you know i'm i'm um I'm, I'm I'm honoured enough at the moment to be the president of Swimming Australia, and and I think uh, that works as an opportunity to to help swimming get into the right position, so that we can absolutely present the very best team in Brisbane in 32, um, and you know whatever else comes along, um, we'll see. But yeah, I, I 
I'd like to think um, an Olympics in my hometown, um, you know, 40 years after I won in Barcelona, will uh, there'll, there'll be there'll be some some connection there. Look, I'm I'm calling this now. Now I've I've already said on this show two potential final torchbearers, the cauldron lighters, a Kathy moment. Now your name is definitely one as a great Queensland athlete, or <laughs> Stephen Bradbury. Now I'm just saying, like you, you two, maybe you two can do it together, or maybe you can go to light the cauldron, then you fall Saliva. over, yeah. and then he picks up the, the <laughs> and then boom, done. Like come on, like I mean, you can take this and pass it on to the officials. I'm just saying, a good idea. Come on. That is that I I will uh, I, I will be taking all credit for that idea and, and throwing it <laughs> forward and and knowing Steve I think he'd uh, he'd enjoy the uh, the irony of it and have some fun with it as well so absolutely I'm just looking here quickly through the past final uh, you know the cauldron lighters it doesn't look like a swimmer has ever lit the cauldron so um, there's a bit of history that potentially that can happen I, I didn't that's surely not true this list I'm looking at that can't be correct. There's got to be at least some swimmer who's lit it. That's insane if they haven't. Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I would have thought in, uh, who lit it in 56. But, I mean, we, uh, we had all those amazing runners, didn't we? Yeah, Ron Clark, there you go. So, look, yes, um, I mean, Australia's unique in our love of swimming. There's, there's only probably a few other nations that revere their swimmers um, at the level that we do. But... Um, Inevitably, the person lighting the cauldron would be a, a current athlete. They, they're usually someone who's competing, has that that honour of the last bit. But um, but you never know. I mean, in Sydney, it was a, a, you know it was an amazing moment watching all of those um, you know um, Dawn Fraser, Raylene Boyle, Shirley Strickland, and you know amazing women handing the handing the torch off to. Um, to Kathy, so you know, you never know. There might be some uh, some opportunity for them to ra- round up a whole bunch of us oldies and get us uh, <laughs> get us involved. But you know, it's a hell of a hell of a list, right? Like, um, yeah. uh, I know, you know, she may not be a Queenslander, but I mean, Emma McKeon's just become the most decorated Australian Olympian in history. Um, you you know, you've got names like Ian Thorpe and um, you know Susie, who you mentioned. Um, I mean, the list goes on. So yeah, it's uh, it, it'll be a hotly contested field. But if I if I get to just be there and, and watch, I'll be uh, be honoured. Just saying, so I don't precedent for them to have multiple final ones. The the um, Miracle on Ice did it in Salt Lake. Uh, we had four in Vancouver, <laughs> I remember, with Gretzky and everyone else. Now, Kieran, before we wrap up with a set of final questions, just to sort of uh, get to know you a little bit better, I'm sure these are some questions you might not have answered. Just just quickly, you mentioned obviously Swimming Australia, uh, Mr. El Presidente. I don't know if that's what we're meant to call you. Um, how how's that role going? And uh, sort of uh, how how are you in, enjoying sort of uh, being now the president of an organisation that you used to? I guess compete for through your entire career. Look, it's it's um, it's actually a hilariously ironic thing, right? Like as an athlete, um, had had the you know all of the requisite levels of disdain and angst for the uh, the the um, the gravy train officials that were running the sport, and you know, and here you are, sort of thirty years later, and you're in that position, and you think, man, oh man, the twenty-year-old swimmer would have would have absolutely been disgusted, um, <laughs> but the forty-eight-year-old looks at it and goes, you know what, I love my sport, and I want it to be successful, and and you know, I'm I'm committed to helping it. It's it's a really hard job, I have to say. Um, you know, it's in in a federated sporting environment, um, running the national body where you have sort of all all the responsibility, but not, none of the accountability 
um, it, it can be it can be quite hard. But um, you know, we we love it, and and all of us that are involved are, are committed to wanting to see the sport do well. So um, so it's great. But it's uh, as I, as I often say to people who don't know, it's the um, it's it's the most uh, uh, stressful, labour-intensive, unpaid volunteer role that you're ever going to uh, pick up. Wow, that's good advertising for your successor. Like you know, oh, absolutely. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll line someone up and give them the hand, the, the dead man's handball when the time comes. It'll be fine. Perfect, perfect. Now, as I said, we wrap up with a series of get to know questions. Now, these are based on a questionnaire that Team Canada put to their athletes ahead of uh, Rio and Pyeongchang. Bit of fun, and we're using the questions that they gave to uh, the great Emily Overholt in uh, Rio. So we've got to keep the swimming sort of page here. So I'll start off with Kieran. There you go. You're allowed to answer yourself if you want to. The greatest Olympian of all time is greatest Olympian of all time. Hmm. Look, um, the Aussie in me says that uh, you know you've got to throw Dawn Fraser up as the you know the first woman to win three consecutive gold medals. Um, just just a phenomenal, phenomenal feat. But uh, I think like most Australians um, who love swimming, it will be very, very hard to ever forget the things that Michael Phelps achieved in the swimming pool. Um, just just an absolute freak beyond all recognition. Do you remember like recognising him? Because he obviously competed in Sydney. Like, I mean, was this something that you kind of go, oh, there's a little kid, he might go into great things? Or when he eventually made it, you're like, oh, I remember seeing him in Sydney. 100% no. Absolutely not. Um, did not did not recognise. He wasn't on the radar. Um, I think he got a bronze, didn't he, in something um, in Sydney? I don't think he medaled um, in Sydney. No, I think he went to Athens uh, okay. he medaled. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so no, no, no recognition. But five games and, you know, um, became the first man to win three consecutive golds and did it then in two events, I think, in the end, didn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just a freak, yeah. Absolute freak. The first Olympics you remember watching were? Uh, that would have that would have been Los Angeles in '84, definitely. Perfect. Uh, I always like it when somebody can answer one older than me. My first I remember was your first Olympics in Barcelona as a five year old. <laughs> so you know, kind of just to, to balance that out. Um, your Thank favorite you. ice cream flavor is my favorite ice cream flavor. That's a good one. Um, I've had a very long affinity uh, with uh, what. What, when I was a kid, used to be called a choc mint choc wedge. Now, you know, mm. you can get those fancy magnums and things. But, um, yeah. you know, if I was at the ice cream shop, um, you know, the gelato place, I probably tend to go stretch teller every time. So, choc chip. Nice. Good answer. Now, obviously, it's a bit fancy now when the swimmers walk out onto the pool deck with the flashy, you know, graphics and everything. All that. You didn't quite have that. But if you did back in the day and you had some walk-up music, what would your song be as you walked out onto the pool deck? Oh, that's a that's a hard one. Um, God, my walkout music. Um, I like that I've got him thinking. This is you good. do, yeah. Well, because I'm thinking, you know. So this, so what are we talking? Eighties into the nineties. I mean, there was a lot of really bad music around back then that we absolutely loved. I mean, glam rock was at its at its peak. <laughs> you know, I was a big, big Oz rock guy. Um, so, you know, you sort of want to do the right thing. You got to pick an in excess song or Hunters and Collectors or something like that. But um, Perfect choices. I see it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, Bon Jovi or something like that would have oh, to get yeah. in the way also. Um, 
I don't know, how about um, completely left field just because it's popped into my head. Um, Steve Tyler and Run DMC, Walk This Way. Oh, yes, yes. I like it. <laughs> That's great. That could be the best one we've had on this uh, That answer. I like that one. Last one I'll ask you then, Kieran. Uh, I don't know if you even have time for this. You're a busy man, but the most recent TV show that you binge-watched is... Peaky Blinders. Ah, nice. How did, what did you think of it? Absolutely loved it and looking forward to the next one. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that uh, in, you know, the hundreds of days of uh, Melbourne lockdown that, uh, that I've been getting into uh, and, and enjoying watching. But, um, but that was, yeah, that was one that um, I, I, I started watching it. I'd never seen any of it and uh, managed to crash through five seasons pretty, pretty quick. It didn't take me very long. I, I yeah, completely hooked. Loved it. World record time, one would say, maybe. Uh, you know, it's all those lines. Possibly not, but it was a good crack. <laughs> Kieran, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show to go over your journey and everything else in between. We, we appreciate it, and we look forward to seeing that cauldron being lit at the Gabba in 11 years' time. You and Stephen, like, <laughs> just, just sell it for us. Come on, it's a perfect way to win, to get those Olympics open in 2032. You have to start a movement for me, Ben. Push it hard. Thank you. Massive thanks to Kieran for his time. Such an honour. And, wow, I, I'm i really liking this idea of the cauldron being lit at the Gabba with, with Kieran and then and then Stephen Bradbury. I think it just it would fit so well, you know. Two great Queenslanders, two great Olympic Queenslanders just, just going out there and uh, getting the games off with a bang. So uh, we're, we'll be sure to start that campaign moving forward. And moving forward, of course, we've got some great episodes coming your way interviews and everything else in between as we get closer and closer to the beijing winter olympics if you want to stay up to date with who we've got on the show what other episodes we've got available for you to listen to search for us on social media off the podium instagram of course twitter facebook hit us up send us a message let us know what you're thinking of the show request a guest say hello or just suggest something we'd love to hear from you as well and if you never want to miss one of these episodes the best way to go about it is subscribe on all good social media platforms other podcasting platforms i should say search off the podium hit the subscribe button while you're there leave us some feedback we'd love to hear what you think of the show there too and give us a rating out of five i think today's episode solid five just saying i'm biased but uh that's how i'm meant to be massive thanks to kieran again thanks to everybody for listening to the show my name is ben and as always go left